Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. to another episode of Seriously. We're going to start with some very, very big news that has just broken and that I know you are feeling pretty broken about, Anna, which is One Direction. Yeah, the dream is over, but we'll live on in our hearts. Yeah, so last night, just as I was, you know, when you're just like, okay, I'm ready for my early night now because Mm. I've got to be up early in the morning. So as I was doing that, my Twitter feed went insane because The Sun broke an exclusive news story that the band are planning on disbanding in March next year. Still got quite a lot of time. But yeah, it wasn't that surprising because they were only contracted for five albums. And so the end of that contract is meant to be March anyway. So I was kind of like expecting this. Also, Zane left. Louis become like soon to be a dad which shouldn't be something that I'm like, that was really sad news. But for me, it was just like another symptom that everything was breaking apart. And that they've grown up as well. Yeah, exactly. And that they're like adults. It makes me really sad in a way that I find difficult to articulate because people are like, literally Nick Grimshaw on the radio this morning said, I'd be upset if my house burnt down, but I wouldn't be upset about a boy band breaking up, which I completely understand what his point is. But at the same time, it is something that's, something so that these were children and now they're adults and like we're all getting older and we're all gonna die (laughs) it reminds me actually of when um was it our first episode where you made me the one direction playlist which i did listen to on the way to work by the way in you know in honor slash sadness you pointed me towards that piece about how part of the brilliance of one direction is that they remind us that everything will come to an end (laughs) all things change yeah exactly and um that's one of the things that really gets me about this also it's so funny to me when people say, like, I don't understand why you would, like, care about these people. You don't even know them, all that kind of thing. That's the whole point. The whole point is that there are these, like, four to five bland, pretty faces that an army of wonderful, creative teenage girls have gone out and made into a community and made mean something. And that, for me, is really, like, a beautiful thing. So although I can see why this isn't a tragedy that's happening, tragedies are happening literally every day and there are more important things to worry about. But you can say that about anything at all in this world. And actually, there's something really lovely about One Direction and the fans and what that means. But hopefully that community you talk about can live on. I mean, I'm 
pretty sure they're all gonna they're not gonna disappear from the public eye they're all gonna go on and do solo stuff acting DJing whatever so it won't be the same but it will still exist exactly and the thing that I mourn is that it not being the same not the fact that it's sort of over because as you say I don't think it's really over (laughs) fan tweeted lol they can kill one direction but they'll never release us from the prison of fandom which i thought was quite funny because for a lot of these teams it doesn't even feel like a choice it's just like well i'm here now i've invested so much of my life into this so i'm gonna continue if we do think about these four people as actual human beings for a minute which is something that i don't do that often they work so hard They've done over 325 headline stadium shows in the last five years. That's insane. That's like, the schedule is nuts and they never get a break. And I actually think, you know, something terrible will happen if they carry on working this hard all the time. You know, like, Zane quit because he just felt like he couldn't do it anymore. But what would you do if you just couldn't quit and you had to carry on and, you know, it'd be awful. So Well, and actually, yeah, if you... If you sort of look to history and bands that get really big and exactly it, good you know, stuff doesn't always happen yeah um so i in terms of them as like real young men who deserve a break i'm actually really pleased and think that whether it's a break or a full ending of the band is probably time Going out tonight changes into something red Her mother doesn't like that kind of dress Everything she never had, she's showing up Driving too fast, moon is breaking through her hair She's heading for something that she won't forget Having no regrets is all that she really wants this week is the podcast who killed elsie frost which is a radio 4 serial about the real life murder of elsie frost in wakefield in the early 60s caroline what did you think i liked it i mean there was the obvious comparison that's been made a lot is with serial the american podcast that Mm -hmm. sort of made so much news last year when it was being downloaded millions of times and prompted this kind of real-time online investigation into a cold case and the similarities are really obvious um it's also uh, as you say a real life cold case murder that was never solved it's also being told episodically both being investigated by journalists but also by sort of i suppose citizen journalists doing fois and so on at the same time but the difference is that whilst serial was a sort of self-contained spin-off from this american life elsie frost began as part of Radio 4's PM radio programme, mm. or rather their Saturday version, which I really hate the title. It's called IPM, you know, like iPod. Oh. Why, 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 Radio 4? Stop trying to sound cool I get and internet I, I, I thought that stood for something else. But, but anyway, so it began as a segment on that and really sort of caught people's imaginations. And so 
is now being pursued separately as a sort of standalone podcast. And whilst I I did enjoy it, I didn't get sort of hooked in the way I did with Serial. And I think this is to do with the key difference in the way around the crime is. Because in Serial, Adnan, the uh, sort of main survivor of the, the case who um, the investigating journalist is talking to, he's potentially, well, he is in prison for committing the crime, mm. but he's also the star of the show. Whereas Elsie Frost, she was the victim and she's not there to talk to you. And I think that was, for me, the missing element. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think as well, there's been a real conscious move away from the serial style of reporting on this case. I think it's about trying to find out why it happened. It's important to know who the perpetrator was. But more important than that even is why. Why did it happen on a Saturday afternoon at half past four? I mean, it's very Radio 4 in that there's no mm, music. Yeah. It's just voices. It's not edited in, a, in the same way. Serial was obviously edited to grip you, whereas this is very much like every few weeks they find out something new, they speak to the person they found out something new from, and it's very contained and it doesn't actually feel like, I'm sure this is a reflection on probably how good their editing skills are, but it doesn't even feel like they've edited it at all. Mm. It's just like two people having a conversation and then the conversation is over. So it feels kind of funny for me to say whether it like gripped me or not, because obviously this is somebody's real life and it's not my, um, you know, sort of Sunday afternoon entertainment. The other difference I really felt between this and Serial was that they had the family on board, which does make it makes it very different because you are sort of willing them to find out information. But you're also sort of it's there's more tension because a lot of people are saying, you know, actually the siblings might not want to find out all the details because some of the stuff that's in this file is is really, you know, haunting stuff. It feels a bit more real to me mm, and it feels yeah. a, less like I want them to find everything out because I, I feel for them so much more as people. In Serial, the family aren't there. You don't really think about them that much, you know, for better and for worse. And that, for me, changes the whole listening experience. Yeah, absolutely. And there's... I I definitely felt with Serial at times that I'd forgotten that these were real people. It may as They may as well have been fictional. It mm. could have been fiction, and I would have enjoyed it probably as much. Mm. Though maybe there was a slight free song from the fact that you got from the fact that it wasn't fiction. But still, I think the majority of my reaction was quite similar. Whereas you're right, this does feel very serious and very real. Actually, it reminded me very much of um, a quite a famous book that Paul Foote wrote called Who Killed Hanratty, which is about a um, uh, James Hanratty, who was uh, actually one of the last people to be executed for murder, who the journalist Paul Foote and lots of other people believe did not commit the murder that he was killed for. And Foote wrote this long book where he investigated, he basically followed Hanratty's last movements for the last few days and he felt conclusively proved that at the very least there was enough doubt to have meant there should be a new trial rather than Mm. just the verdict that there was. And I was given this book actually when I first moved to London to become a journalist by someone saying, like, if you want to be a journalist, you've got to read this because this is the pinnacle of what journalism can do. And in the same way as Serial, I think I enjoyed it as it's a, it's a real page turner, you know. Mm. Um, and then a few years later, I think it was, you know, that period between Christmas and New Year on Radio 4, they, um, they let people guest edit the Today programme. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who, but someone guest edited the Today programme who also really cares about this Hanratty case. 
and interviewed the guy's brother and it turns out there is still DNA evidence on file at the Home Office that if the Home Secretary would give them permission they could test and probably get him a posthumous pardon at least or apologise but the Home Office so far hasn't allowed this to happen but so that's something I was like oh wow it's real and it's still out there you know the the book might be finished but the story isn't over and that's similarly how I feel about Elsie Frost that you want you want to know, but you also feel like you shouldn't know that it's private, that it's keep still there. Absolutely, and I think also there's a much more concrete sense of community and how the murders really affected the community in Wakefield in in this um, in Who Killed Elsie Frost. Um, whereas in Serial, it seems much, you know, it's it's just they're such different beasts, and I I think one of the things that again makes it feel so much more real is this idea that there are still people 50 years later calling up Radio 4 saying, oh, I heard about this, I was in Wakefield at the time, it really changed, you know, everything about my growing up. Um, And, yeah, that just really hits it home for you. Yeah, and I suppose also that, just as you mentioned, the style of reporting is much more focused on those people's stories and Mm. not, whereas part of what made serial feel like fiction to me was that Sarah Koenig the presenter and sort of lead journalist on it she she told the story from her own perspective so we found out things in the order that she found them out and we heard about her responses to things almost as soon as we heard about them whereas that's not how they're doing this they're doing this as you say very much as a a sort of methodical investigation punctuated by these new facts as they emerge so in conclusion do we recommend Elsie Frost? I think so, but with the caveat that it's not a gripping, you know, true life crime page turner or I don't know what the audio or, or, equivalent or of audio that. turner. I but do think if you if you want something like that, the thing to go and look for is uh, HBO's The Jinx, mm. which is very much, although it is again a real life thing, also feels like fiction because it's so truly bizarre and is handled like fiction mm. by you know someone with a with a history in doing fiction shows mm. and films. If you want information about a fascinating case and a sort of serious and actually quite Very disturbing, sad, yeah. quite sad case, this is more that kind of thing. Next up, we're going to talk about Paper Towns in both book and movie form, as the movie just came out. Um, I read the book over the weekend. You did as well, Caroline? Same, yeah. So, should we start with the book? Yes. Well, I suppose maybe to give a brief outline of what it's about, the the plot doesn't change very much at all, actually, from book to movie, does it? The outline mm, is there. It's pretty similar. There, were, there are a couple of differences, but yeah. Um, and with the usual caveat that we're going to talk about this in a fair amount of detail, so if you really don't want to know what happens, maybe skip to the next segment. The story of Paper Towns is, it's a its a teen story, it's about teenagers, it's about a boy and a girl who grow up on the same street. The way I figure it, everyone gets a miracle. My miracle was, I wound up living across the street from Margot Roth Spiegelman. She was arguably the most gorgeous creature that God had ever created. Margot's life was a series of unbelievably epic adventures. Are you going to spend the rest of high school pining for this girl? As senior year drew to a close, Margot and I were practically strangers. Until this one night. What the? Margot? 
I need to borrow your car. What? I have nine things I need to do tonight. Can you just get your boyfriend to do it? Ex-boyfriend. And the girl grows up into a, a sort of mysterious young woman, and the boy grows up into a kind of nerdy, quite literal person. And just before they're supposed to finish high school, they share this this one night of sort of petty crime caper, let's call it, <laughs> where they drive all around Orlando where they live. It and does they, look so fun, though, and for they all the petty crime. <laughs> are fantastic. And, and they enact revenge on all the people who wronged Margot, the girl. And then she disappears. She's gone. And the rest of the the book and the film is Quentin, her neighbour, trying to find out... Well, he thinks he's trying to find out where she's gone, but in actual fact, he's trying to find out who she is. And yeah, that's that's really the rest of the story, is him him doing that and his friends helping him and high school coming to an end and all the rest of it. It's really like Gone Girl without any of the violence. That's exactly (laughs) what I thought when I was reading it. I was like, even in the way that that bit when they... So as part of their kind of little crime spree... At the end of the night, they go up to the top of the tallest building yeah. in Orlando to like see how it's all going. Um, and <laughs> just in itself, quite bizarre. And, and she gives that little speech about, um, which is obviously where the title of the book comes from, um, about Orlando being a paper town for a paper people. You know, nothing there is real; everyone is artificial. Yeah. And that reminded me really strongly of the the kind of cool girl speech of I bit in, in yeah Gondor. and also isn't there a bit to do with the paper anniversary and stuff like oh, that i don't remember Gondor. that bit there's like all the, it's like the wood anniversary you know the treasure hunt oh, like right, yeah, and there's yeah. I, th- I feel like there's a bit where she talks about paper in re- in relation to the paper anniversary and stuff being flimsy but of the interesting thing is basically how this journey of trying to find a person as you say becomes about basically the relationship between the two main characters even though for the vast majority of the book and one of those characters is just not present yes and i thought actually that was very interesting in terms of the casting in the movie because i think it's got quite a bit of press just on the basis that cara de Levine is in it and it's one of her first sort of starring acting roles after having been a very successful model having cast someone with that much kind of draw and just like screen presence to cast her as someone who then isn't in it for an hour is quite bold. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think it's brilliant casting. So did I. Fantastic. She's really good. She's really, really good. And it really makes sense. One of the main themes that, that we're going to talk about a lot, I think, today is this idea that Margot, who's almost always referred to um, with her full name, which I think is a real thing that reminds me of being at school and having crushes, like calling your crush by their full name. Like she's always Margot Roth Spiegelman. Mm. Quentin, the main character, is really got this mythical idea of her is something that obviously Cara Delevingne is going to understand so well because she's a model but also she was a model that like stuck her tongue out in a few photo shoots and everyone was like oh this like quirky girl she's Mm. got so much personality and we like know what that personality is when obviously she's modeling it's it's something she does you know she put she's putting on a face quite Mm. literally she's as unknowable when she does that as when she makes a kind of icy cool model face absolutely yeah. so uh, it, and it really really works and as does as does her kind of look and appearance i think because the whole point about margot is that she is the queen of their high school but she's a reluctant queen she's not a traditional kind of beautiful blonde wearing the sort of latest fashions you know mm. she wears whatever she wants she doesn't do much with her hair and yet still she has this magnetic force yeah she has edge essentially yeah yeah. Yeah. she's too interesting looking not to play an interesting looking person yeah absolutely and there's it's funny as well because i don't want to be mean about the lead guy but the the guy who plays quentin is like bland looking 
<laughs> he's also quite I mean I know, I'm sure this is deliberate I'm sure this is part of his skill as an actor he's also quite gormless yeah yeah and he's good he is good at that sort of he, he kind of needs to be someone who's like torn between being like awkward and very inward and actually trying to discover a confident self so he's got that blend definitely but he also is this always happens in any teen film because this is what happens in real life as well but all the girls look about like 25 and gorgeous and all the boys look about 14 and terrible um so yeah that was funny and and a good representation of what it's like to be a teenager and I think that was basically what I really enjoyed about the book and the best bits of the film was that it really sort of understands what it is like to be a teenager and what it's like to feel maybe irrationally drawn to another person and about sort of like discovering whether those feelings are sort of grounded in reality or not. Yes, absolutely. And the the bit that really brought it that home for me was when um, uh, Lacey, who's supposedly Margot's best friend, but who's one of the people who Margot feels betrayed by after Margot's disappeared it's the bit where she's sitting in the bath talking to Quentin mm. and and she's she's talking about another girl Becca who has been um going has now gone off with Margot's boyfriend and is probably going to be prom queen now and she says she's basically the new Margot and that reminded me so strongly of being a teenager and being how invisibly to all of the adults around you there was just this hierarchy and everyone knew exactly where they fitted into this hierarchy yeah and yep if anyone moved away or whatever yeah you all moved up one place and so and so became the new someone else um and of course that made total sense you didn't have to question it (laughs) because we all played these fixed roles yeah absolutely so one of the things that i wanted to talk about most in relation to this, which I do think has been discussed a lot, is this idea of not knowing somebody and projecting onto another person. Mm. And this all ties into this movie trope of the manic pixie dream girl, films like A Hundred Days of Summer. This is something that John Green's actually spoken about, I think, pretty specifically (laughs) when the book came out, which was actually back in 2008. So it's been around for quite a while. John Green said, Paper Towns is devoted, and this is in caps locks, in its entirety to destroying the lie of the manic pixie dream girl really comes across in both things obviously it plays up to the manic pixie dream girl trope as well because to have that really fun night at the beginning of the book these two characters there kind of has to be this element that Margot is really really like alluring Mm. and mysterious so it spends a lot of that beginning bit really playing up to that idea but then as Margot literally disappears that changes quite a lot and one of the things that I thought was really interesting to get a bit detaily with the plot is this idea of the paper towns in jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...title, and as you say, she kind of says, oh, Orlando is a paper town, and uh, Quentin kind of is a bit like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then when she disappears, one of the clues she leaves says that she's basically gone to the paper towns which he in the book decides are these pseudo divisions of of florida yeah um so he goes around all these sort of they're basically like new build towns aren't they yeah or like or even plots of land that were meant to be developed that then weren't developed exactly and he kind of starts off the first few towns that he goes to are actually pretty developed and then Mm. as each one that he goes to becomes less and less developed until there's nothing there and then the real turning point of the novel is when he realizes that a paper town can be a fictional town that doesn't exist at all. It's a reference to the fictional places that cartographers put on maps as a copyright trap to make sure that they know when someone else is copying their map. And so they're places that exist only on paper. And I thought that really interestingly mirrored this idea that he realises he's reducing his sort of own conception of Margot to its purest form when Mm. he's like, actually, this is just an idea and it doesn't reflect reality at all. So I thought it was quite cool the way at the beginning Margot tells him Orlando's a paper town and he he can't see what he can't see that because he's looking at Orlando and he can see the buildings and he's like, "Mm, these are real people. Yeah. And Um, he doesn't see that it actually it's a reference to the sort of stories that we tell ourselves about places rather than the place itself absolutely and i just thought that was a really good way of mirroring his own sort of like internal understanding of other people and and this Mm. and that his idea of margot is not actually real at all one one of the reasons that i like the book more than the film even though they are quite close in plot is that in in the book for about the first third of it i was quite cross with the book because I completely bought into John mm. Green's Manic Pixie Dream Girl and I was like, why does she only exist to give Quentin a good time? Why just <laughs> why am I not getting any of her thoughts? Why am I not living inside her head? She's clearly much more interesting. Yeah. And then once she disappeared and once the book actually started to interrogate the fact that its main character thinks of this girl like that, I went, Oh, okay, fine, I see what he's doing here. And that that my own transition was part of the reason I enjoyed the book. Whereas I think, I don't know, I feel like cinema should be able to do that. It Mm. should be able to play with genre and subvert your own, the you of 10 minutes ago and your own opinions. But this film didn't really do that for me. I felt when I was reading the book, I was thinking, how are they going to do this in movie form? Because so much of it is just Quentin saying like, and then I realised this, and then I realised that. And that's really difficult to get across on screen. And so what they actually do to make that transition is they just don't have Quentin really realise anything. Mm. And so then when he finally, spoiler alert, finds Margot in a paper town that is, you know, fictional, he is overjoyed to see her in a very romantic, thinks he solved all the clues he was meant to solve. And now they can be together. And now they can be together. And uh, Margot is like, wait, I'm really surprised to see you, like what are you doing here? And then, you know, he says, I love you. And she says, you don't even know me. Mm. So although it it changes the whole sort of narrative flow of the book, I did think, and I think for the worst, mostly, I did think that scene was quite a powerful way of saying that this idea of the, of the girl who exists only to make you realize things 
is false. Though he did then say, <laughs> um, but I had the best few weeks of my life because of you, and which kind of ruined it again for me, which doesn't really happen in the book. I did like the bit, though, when um, he said that when everyone else was doing things for the last time as high school came to the end, you caused me to do things for the first time. Like, I went to my first ever party. Like, I cut class for the first time in my whole life. I went on my first road trip. I quite liked that, that sort of symmetry. But again, there was that niggling thing of, oh, maybe Margot exists only as a, a way of making the male character more fun, which annoyed me. Yeah, but they did have that wonderful line where he was like, oh, um, I don't know where she is now or what she's doing. There's this rumour, there's that rumour, there's another. But that's her story to tell. Yes, exactly. So they, they did sort of finally at the very end make explicit the fact that they were trying to subvert that whole idea. But it wasn't quite as... And again, I feel like you should be able to do this in cinema, but maybe it's really hard. It wasn't threaded through in quite the same satisfying way. And also, the, just the usual things you get with a, a book-to-screen adaptation. I This is the first John Green book I've ever read. Me too. Um, but I know him from his, you know, his mammoth online presence, mm-hmm. um, his his vlogging, his Tumblr, etc. And I know that he, just as a person, like he's quite witty and also he's very, very knowledgeable about the internet. And all the the jokes in the book matched up with that. You know, the the kind of IM conversations that were reproduced. Like all of the main characters had really funny screen names, but absolutely the screen names you would pick if you were a teenager. Mm. And the fact one of Quentin's best friends is a an obsessive editor of what they call Omnictionary, but which is clearly Wikipedia. It's yeah. like a crowdsourced encyclopedia, and that is at several times in the plot really important but the rest of the time really annoying because his friend won't stop <laughs> editing wikipedia and pay attention to him yeah. those those kind of things i really really enjoyed and didn't really translate to the screen so much but they did translate the brilliant black santa joke yeah that so, worked really well actually and that worked really well because it is essentially a visual gag so yeah. so that was good but i think i think i'm going to read more john green now i i enjoyed it well, I, did you like his writing style? Because one of the things that obviously really doesn't carry over to the movie is he writes very, like, imagistically. Mm. Like, there's a lot of... Like, the book is divided into three sections. The names of those sections refer to sort of overarching metaphors that he uses. And to be honest, I found it a bit much. I really enjoyed it at the beginning. There were a few kind of, like, subtle things that he did that I really enjoyed. So, for example, when they drive to that building and look out um, at the top of the SunTrust building mm. over all of Orlando... Actually, a few chapters earlier, he mentions that he's reading, that he's studying The Great Gatsby just mm. before she pops into his window. And then on the way there, he says, oh, you know, it's near the asparagus. And the asparagus turns out to be a, a green sculpture that's really called the Tower of Light. So there's this enormous tower of mm. green light um, next to the SunTrust building, which is ob- obviously, to me, a, a Gatsby reference. And yeah. this idea that he's reaching for something that's not real, which I really enjoyed. I thought, wow, what a great, subtle little nod to um, this, where this trope maybe you know originates or is certainly a, a massive example um and there's also references to um Moby Dick things like that but by the end I felt so beaten over the head by a copy of Leaves of Grass I was gonna say it was the Walt Whitman really that got me yeah yeah the extensive quotations and constant references to grass yeah exactly <laughs> did yeah that was maybe a bit too much and a bit sort of dodgy dodgy things about like boats at the end that were just like does this make any sense to anyone i'm a bit <laughs> um 
but I do I do think for all my like picking apart it I think actually what a great book to be out there for, for young people mm. there's it, it really does pull at a lot of ideas and again really taps into what it feels like to be a teenager it really reminded me of a Chris Krause quote everything reminds me of a Chris Krause quote but um, she talks what she calls the psychosis of adolescence which is not said in a sort of negative way but um, this power that you really have that what's going on inside your head can change the outside world mm. which is exactly what's happening with Quentin because he really believes that if he solves this treasure hunt it will have like lasting ramifications on the world around him and he has to just like keep sitting there and thinking for the whole book and then that will like change the world and and that even though unlike Margot, he's very secure in what he wants his future to be like he wants to go to college he wants to be a doctor Mm. it's and he wants to get married he wants to have children he's really sure about all of that he's got this idea that if she'll just come back and like either live with his family or get her own place in Orlando for the summer. I mean, obviously he's still going to go to college at the end of it, but if she just comes back for the summer, everything will be different. Yeah. Like, no, it won't. You've deliberately planned so that it won't be, but you're trying to change that exterior fact just with your wishing. Yeah, it's very it's very good on like wish fulfillment and she's obviously cuts right to the core of it a lot. So I do think for all its sort of minor pitfalls, this is a, a great influence for young people. Mm, absolutely. Last week, I recommended the wonderful Broad City for Caroline to watch, as I have done with basically everyone I know (laughs) over like a campaign of, you know, publicity for this comedy. Caroline, what did you think of Broad City? I had the best time watching it. Yay. (laughs) It was was just so funny. The It was, for me anyway, it was absolutely the right mixture of kind of character-based stuff, but also just totally surreal Absolutely. I absolutely love things like that. Like um, 30 Rock particularly, when it, in later series, when it just got a bit woo, was absolutely my favourite thing in the world. And yeah, Broad City really, really ticked that box for me. What did you think of the two main characters, Abby and Alana, who obviously like drive the show? Um... I definitely sympathise more with Abby. Yeah, with more of an Abby. I'm very much more of an Abby. Um, in her, in her sort of drive to, well, she's slightly older, isn't she? And yeah. she, um, in her drive to, like, improve her life while at the same time, very comprehensively preventing herself from doing so. I really sympathise with that. One of my favourite um, sort of this... Because Abby, I think, is a dark horse and that she is also a, a rebel. Um, mm. But one of my favourite Abby lines that I think sum up her character is when she says, you know, I'm an adult now. I need to be buying my own weed. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I mean. That This idea that, yeah, I'm, I'm a grown-up now. I should take responsibility for making all of my own mess. <laughs> I shouldn't stop making the mess, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Alana, you just pulled a bag of pot out of your vagina. I know. Why, why would you do that? I do it all the time. Honestly, it's the safest way to travel. Apparently, I have been smoking this 
tainted weed for I don't even know how long. Tainted. I didn't mean that. This is disturbing to me. I, d I don't know what to tell you. It's in a bag. And, you know, the Vianya is nature's pocket. It's, it's natural. And it's responsible. Shouldn't even be bumming off of you. Oh, who cares? No, I'm an adult. I should be buying my own pot. Wow. Never thought this day would come, you know? I would be honored and pleasured to facilitate this. No, no, no. No, no, you dudes. I want to get my own pot, okay? I'm not going to be, like, holding my mommy's hand while I buy drugs. Like, I can do this. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a grown-ass woman and do my taxes for once. Without my mommy daddy. <laughs> yeah, bitch. Yeah, and in the same way, it's got that, that same kind of New York in the 21st century vibe young people trying to have great lifestyles whilst having no money thing that girls and obvious child which we've also talked about on a previous mm. podcast have got and I, I really like that atmosphere though I think they have much more realistic flats in Broad City yes they Their do apartments and roommates are much more uh, <laughs> what you would expect Yes, um, and unlike in Girls, Abby at least does have a job that I can understand what it is that she does, and I can see why she would get paid. I mean, she's a cleaner at a gym. Like, that, mm. that is a job someone has to do. You'd definitely get paid for that. Part of the joke is, of course, that Alana definitely doesn't know what her job is, <laughs> nor does it seem like anyone else who no. works there. And I love how every so often there's just a shot of her sitting at her desk with this this thing on the wall behind that just says, deals, deals, deals. <laughs> and, and every so often someone shouts at her to make a deal, and she's like, <laughs> um i do think that yeah that's obviously really poking fun at like the internet like everyone seems to have a job in like online something and in, alana in doesn't apps. really know what what, what hers does but yeah. yeah and and they're they're kind of i mean so like the i think i watched five five episodes oh great um, so you did really enjoy it i did really enjoy it and i'm definitely gonna keep watching i think my favorite episode of the ones i've watched is the one where they get locked out Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when and again, it's it's this this recurring theme that they're of of sort of self improvement disguised as self destruction. Mm. So they've been to Bed Bath and Beyond to buy sort of DIY equipment because they're going to put up a new closet rail in Alana's flat and all the rest of it. And in actual fact, they get locked out of her apartment. A really creepy locksmith comes and they're too creeped out to tell him which one their they apartment live in. <laughs> is. So they tell him it's another apartment. So they sort of accidentally break into someone else's flat. And then they have to leave there as well. And they end up traipsing around Brooklyn for an entire night with a curtain rail and some like massive bags full of towels or something. <laughs> which um, is weirdly like how a lot of the episodes end up. Like there's one where Abby loses her phone and there's one where they like decide to go off grid and like all these episodes just end up with them like wandering around New York trying to like do stuff together. Yeah. Right, we've all had sort of weekends or weeks or whatever like that where some a, a sort of a chain of circumstances that seem beyond your control make even the most basic thing really, really difficult. I'm I'm thinking particularly of a few years ago when when I lived with two friends and it just so happened one night one of us was away the other two of us were both going out to do separate things and you know who who could have predicted that that would be the night we both left the flat without our keys <laughs> so you had two people in London neither of whom had a key one person who did have a key but she was in Manchester and wasn't coming back for a week <laughs> you know suddenly just the very yeah. and, and also that would be the weekend that we had people staying with us a whole chain of circumstances end up with us all sitting on the staircase in the building drinking mulled wine <laughs> that has been pre-mulled from Tesco's feeling really sad you know yeah the, 
it, it happens. This kind of stuff happens. And very quickly you've gone from being a, a person who lives in a flat and, you know, has regular showers to being a person who sleeps on the stairs and drinks mulled wine. Oh, wine's oh, oh the person with a lot of mulled wine, yeah. Yeah, um, you know. And uh, I don't know, it, it feels like, and I'm sure this has been said about Broad City an awful lot, but it feels like the kind of American boy dirtbag story has been told a zillion times. But the the female side of that, doesn't often get it yeah and this is what this does yeah and they're really they're not afraid to be really really crass and really yeah. silly which is one of the things i love most about it i also really enjoy their friendship <laughs> yeah, yeah they're just they're like so close and uh like you said at the beginning it really means that the like character driven element of it even though you're like laughing at these ridiculous surreal things it really like keeps you invested in their actual lives no matter how silly it gets mm. which i really enjoy any standout moments i could just sit and trade like quotes from Broad City forever but um I think after the one where they get locked out my other favorite that I've watched so far is the one I think the title of the episode is Working Girls or something and it's it's focused specifically on their jobs um and is this so the one with the giant baby or is that a different no I think <laughs> that's a different one although I did also like the Love giant baby one. moment but no this is the the one where um uh, Alana follows this chain of jobs where, you know, she's at her actual job and then she gets a call from a temp agency she used to be registered with and so she spends a few hours being a temp for the temp agency and then she's too stressed out by how the stupid computer database works to actually send out any temps so she herself tries to go and do all the temp jobs and she ends up walking five dogs Yes, um, I love this And episode. accidentally returning them all to the wrong places. Um, and there's just this recurring motif of whenever she screws something up and leaves, the guy, it's normally a guy, like like when she goes back to return the dog and realises that she's returning the wrong dog to the wrong person, and there's this sort of businessman who's like, but where's Cuddles? Where's Cuddles? And then when she leaves to go and find Cuddles, there's just this kind of aerial shot of this guy going cuddles with his arms <laughs> yeah. up in the air and that that style of shot recurs about five or six times through the episode yeah. as she screws things up and people are like oh i think i'm missing <laughs> and i don't know that just the the rhythm and the editing and everything of that episode was just so perfect i love dogs so it was a, an extra special episode for me and i also love lincoln her like mm. on off boyfriend well not on off her like actual boyfriend that she denies is her boyfriend yeah. constantly so lincoln also really loves dogs and there's an there's a moment in another episode where she calls him when Abby's lost her phone and she can't get hold of Abby and she's like Lincoln where are you and he's like at the dog shelter and she's like Lincoln get a dog and he goes Alana you know I can't inflict the crazy life of a dentist upon a dog it's just like (laughs) one of my favorite lines in tv ever um I think he's just such a great character played wonderfully by Hannibal Buress he's just Mm. so funny and I also think uh Bevan Abby's I want to say roommate, but actually, like, the joke is that he's her roommate's boyfriend and it's just always there. And it's yeah, and absolutely I, I mean, I've watched five episodes and I've not met her roommate. Yeah, you don't meet her roommate. It's one of the jokes. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so glad you enjoyed it. Basically, A star. Yes, a star and definitely, uh, I, I don't know if everyone thinks like this, but I have TV shows that are sort of like core TV shows and then I have periphery TV shows. Yeah. And this has just been promoted straight into core TV shows. I'll be watching all of it. Yay, fantastic. So for next week... So for next week, I'm going to recommend you another graphic novel. We're 
getting really into graphic novels actually in the last few weeks we should also um, say speaking of graphic novels we did have a, a message in from a reader yes we, a listener a listener <laughs> we did have a message in from a listener we had an email from a listener from harry who was saying that he really enjoyed our chat about the wicked and the divine comics last week and also recommending us the young avengers comic series which i have actually read a couple of my friend alex who's wicked and divine comics i still need to return sorry alex um has already lent me a couple of those. Uh, they're by the same um, writer, illustrator duo as The Wicked and the Divine, and I have really enjoyed them so far, so definitely a good shout, Harry. But so, yes, for next week, Anna, I'm also going to recommend you a graphic novel, which is Persepolis by, and I don't know how you say her name, but I think it's Marjane Satrapi. Okay, cool. I don't speak great Persian, sorry. Um, which is, it's a bit like Fun Home. It's an autobiographical graphic novel but the major sort of point of it is that she grew up in Iran just after the revolution and so it's it's all about how she suddenly went from being a schoolgirl who did whatever she wanted to be a school from being a schoolgirl that had to wear the veil and her you know her family were very political and radical and you know sometimes her uncle would disappear to prison and their neighbors would disappear and there was war and there were bombs but she was a child and a teenager and she was growing up and and drawing was the thing that she loved and so this was the outcome of her whole experience yeah i remember when the film came out which was obviously really acclaimed um and so i've seen some clips of that and i did really want to read the uh, the novel when it came out but i never got around to it so thanks very much for recommending it i'll definitely enjoy it i'm sure <laughs> Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Anna. And I'm Caroline. You can find us on iTunes. Our Twitter is at SeriouslyPod. And if you want to send us an email, we're SeriouslyPod, S-R-S-L-Y, pod at gmail.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.